friends, welcome to the Bible Project Daily Podcast. And this project is to work together through the whole Bible, chapter by chapter, verse by verse. Today, we're continuing our study in the book of Exodus and this amazing encounter between Moses, his brother Aaron and Pharaoh on how God first warns and then uses these plagues to try and move Pharaoh, shall we say, to where he needs to be. So thank you for joining me. If you're here for the first time, then why not make the decision to make the study of the Bible part of the rhythm of your daily life? And click on that subscribe button wherever you got this and you get your podcasts from. And that way you need never miss another single episode. And if you are here for the first time, well, enjoy our time of Bible study together. But do hang on at the end where I'll tell you lots of ways you can connect to my various ministries across various platforms where you can receive lots of free Bible study and Bible teaching resources. So with that said, it's bye for now. And we'll drop back into the main text where we left off last time. And I'll see you at the end. Bye-bye now. I wonder if you, like me, ever speak to people and think, you know, they didn't just get that. They just don't get what I'm trying to say. It happens to me all the time. Sometimes I think I'm saying something which is rational and saying it in a reasonable manner, but I'm aware, I think, they really didn't get what I meant. Now, you and I, if you've been with us for a while, you'll know we've been studying the book of Exodus for a couple of weeks now. And while doing that, And reaching this point today, I think it taught me that it's not the fact that people aren't ready, it's the fact that what's really difficult is to understand how ready people are to listen to the message of the truth about the Bible and what it says about God and Jesus for that matter. Now occasionally, of course, in your interactions with other people, you might find some low-hanging fruit, shall we call it, and all you need to do is just reach out and make contact with them, and the fruit is so ripe, so to speak, that all you have to do is reach out and be ready to catch it when it falls. In other cases, if you'll excuse the analogy, you do have to shake that tree a little, challenge people where they are. And in some cases, you may need to get an instrument or to use some kind of strategy to prick the fruit off the tree. And at other times, it isn't just ripe yet. And sadly, some other times you find that by the time you meet them, it's in a sense like fruit that's just rotting on the branch. In other words, with some people, it's very easy to talk to them about God. It's almost as if they're ready. But with others, it's more difficult. And with some people, you notice it gets progressively more difficult as you spend time with them. So because of that, I feel we need to be aware how to approach people. How to know when they're at their point of readiness. And if appropriate, whatever strategy we should use to reach out to them. Now the easy ones, they're very easy to deal with. The ones that are ripe and ready and receptive and they listen. You've just got to be obedient and when you meet such people, when the time is right, simply talk to them about the Lord. Tougher cases, well it's harder to know. So what should we do in those cases? How do we know what's the right tool and the right strategy to use, the right instrument so to speak, to reach them and pluck them off the tree or just maybe perhaps tease them a little bit to encourage them to fall. Well, if you want a good example of how to deal with the toughest type of fruit in terms of unbelief, then I think there's no better example in our Bible than this guy called Pharaoh. 
We've already had several meetings with him, along with Moses and Aaron, and he's already heard in no uncertain terms what God exactly wants him to do. And in that case, in this case, it is to let the children of Israel leave. The scriptures have made that clear. What Moses and Aaron have said have made that clear. So, of course, the front-line purpose of what God's requiring of him is the deliverance of his children of Israel. But also, we've discovered that part of the purpose of God in doing this was to convince Pharaoh that the God of Israel was the one true God and that none of those pagan gods that Pharaoh and the Egyptian people were worshipping were powerful in every way. You might say weren't even real, actually. It does actually tell us several times in this passage, and will continue to do so, that these things were done that he may know that I am the Lord. That's how God explained to Moses and Aaron the purpose of what they were doing. However, Pharaoh, he didn't get it. He didn't bow, he didn't bend, he wasn't about to acknowledge the Lord was God. And as we can see, and as we have seen in our study so far, the Lord dealt with this stubborn man by delivering, first of all, warnings, in the form of threats of plague and then judgments in the actual arrival of what will eventually be ten plagues, the last of which you will discover will be precursor to the Passover. Now the first nine are divided into three sets of three and we looked at the first set of three in yesterday's episode and today we're going to look at the next set of three plagues. So how do you deal with a stubborn person, someone who repeatedly refuses to hear the word of the Lord? Well, I would suggest we're about to find out. And I'm going to read for you Exodus 8, 20-23, which in my Bible is titled, The Fourth Plague Flies. And it says, And the Lord said to Moses, Rise early in the morning and stand before Pharaoh as he comes out to the water. Then say to him, Thus saith the Lord, Let my people go that they may serve me, or else, if you will not let my people go behold i will send a swarm of flies on you and your servants on your people and into your houses the houses of egyptians shall be full of swarms of flies even on the ground in which they stand and in that day i will set apart the land of goshen in which my people dwell and no swarm of flies shall be there in order that you may know the difference that I am the Lord in the midst of the land, I will make a difference between my people and your people. Tomorrow this sign will be. We're just pausing there for a second and I'll try and explain what's going on. And it opens and says it was in the morning. Did you notice that? If you recall, in the first set of three plagues, the Lord told Moses and Aaron to go to Pharaoh down by the Nile River in the morning. And this little phrase in the morning appears before the first plague and then again here before the fourth plague and it will appear again before the seventh plague. In other words, in each of these three sets of three plagues, they begin on a new day. Not necessarily the next day because experts believe these events took place over several months. But this is a new day and as the, the plagues that follow don't set a time designation so this is one of the clues that the Lord did by his instructions put these three events and wish to mark them into three sets of three. So Moses and Aaron, they go to Pharaoh in the morning and they say again, the message is from the Lord, let my people go that they may serve me. Now Pharaoh had been told all this before, but in this case, 
The Lord, through them, says, If you choose not to do that, I will send a swarm of flies on you and your servants and your people. But these aren't just going to be ordinary flies. We're told that these are flies that the actual Hebrew word used is flies that will fasten themselves upon the human body. And there are references elsewhere that it talks especially of them attaching themselves on the eyelids of people and tormenting people in that way. And we also discover that whatever particular type of insect these are, they bite people. Psalm 78, in fact, tells us that these flies disfigured people and caused swelling produced by stings. And these flies also killed plants in which they deposited their eggs. So this is clearly a horrible, hideous plague. And this is what the Lord has sent to try and convince Pharaoh to simply listen to him and do what he said. He's even warning him in advance that this is going to happen. He's going to warn them that their houses are going to be overrun and even their possessions, everything they have and own, will be swarmed with flies. Even the ground in which they stand will be covered by them. Now at this point we discover the children of Israel are living in a particular area of the land of Egypt called Goshen and he says that he's going to keep that area separate and clear of this plague. So he's making a kind of dramatic division and again as a sign that this is not a natural phenomenon. This is not Mother Nature. This is Father God doing this. Picking up in verse 24 it says, And the Lord did so. So this is the next day, as he warned. Thick swarms of flies came into the house of Pharaoh, into his servants' houses, and into all the land of Egypt. And the land was corrupted because of the swarms of flies. Then Pharaoh called for Moses and Aaron and said, Go sacrifice to your God in the land. Now we can only imagine how bad this must have been. So the plague hits, just as was warned. And at that point, Pharaoh says, All right, all right, go sacrifice to your God in the land. Now that, at first hearing, might sound like he's conceding, right? Is he conceding? Do you notice anything different about his concession of what he said they can do and what they actually asked for? This time he doesn't just say go. He says, go and sacrifice to your God in the land. So what's wrong with that? Isn't that what Moses had asked for? Well, if you look at verse 20 again, it says, let my people go that they may serve me. And their request all along was that they be allowed to leave the area, travel three days and serve in the wilderness. But Pharaoh here in verse 25 just says simply go sacrifice in the land. What's the problem here? Well look at these last three words. He's saying in the land. Now it's already been made very clear to him on several occasions I want them to go out of the land and that journey is going to be a distance away to go into the wilderness so by this concession that they go, Pharaoh isn't doing exactly what the Lord says in this conditional. And Moses' reply is, It is not right to do so, for we would be sacrificing the abomination of the Egyptians to the Lord our God. If we sacrifice the abomination of the Egyptians before their eyes, then the people may stone us. That verse is going to take a little bit of unpacking. What's this mean, sacrificing the abomination of the Egyptians? What's the problem here? Well, the problem for the Egyptians is that the answer is that the animals that were going to be sacrificed by the children of Israel to the Egyptians would, in fact, some of them would have been considered gods, which would have made that an abomination to the ordinary Egyptian people. 
So Moses is saying, look, if you just send us out and we do this in this land, that's going to be an abomination to the Egyptians. And they will uprise and they will try and kill us. This is going to cause a riot, he's saying in vernacular terms. So we want to do this, but we don't want to do this in this land of Egypt. Rather, and then he reminds him, verse 27, we will go three days journey into the wilderness and sacrifice to the Lord our God as he commanded us. So Moses is simply saying to Pharaoh, your plan isn't going to work. In fact, it could cause a national disturbance if we do it in the way that you're suggesting. So then Pharaoh says in verse 28, I will let you go that you may sacrifice to your Lord the God in the wilderness, only you shall not go very far away and you shall intercede for me. Intercede for me? What's going on here? Well, basically Pharaoh has of course decided He's sick of these plagues. He's sick of the situation of flies. He's asking Moses to intercede before the Lord to take the flies away. But let's be clear. There's no evidence that he's asking anything more than that. He's asking for the Lord, for him to intercede before the Lord to remove the situation that they're facing, the plague. And then Moses says in 8.29, Indeed, I am going out from you now, and I will entreat the Lord that the swarms of flies depart tomorrow from Pharaoh and his servants and from his people. But let Pharaoh not deal deceitfully any more in not letting the people go to sacrifice to the Lord. Now, you need to remember that Pharaoh had already appeared to concede on another occasion. He said to the people to go, and then the very next day he reneged. So Moses here is warning him and says, don't do that again, Pharaoh. Don't be deceitful. Don't say you're going to do this and in fact not do it. Which is why he says in verse 30, So Moses went out from Pharaoh. He did entreat the Lord, and the Lord did according to the word of Moses. He removed the swarms of flies from Pharaoh and from his servants and from his people. Not one remained. I'll just stop at that point, because what's gone on here is they've made a deal. They've made a bargain. Get these flies out of here and I'll let you go, Pharaoh has effectively said. So what we need to know now is this time will he keep his half of the bargain? Well, what do you think? Verse 32, but Pharaoh hardened his heart at this time also, neither would he let the people go. Wow, here we go again. To use the words of the text, very simply, he would not let the people go. Okay, what's the Lord going to do next? And the answer is he's going to send another pig. So let's pick up the story in chapter 9, verse 1. And it's the fifth plague, and this is a plague upon the livestock. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go into Pharaoh and tell him, Thus saith the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, Let my people go that they may serve me. For if you refuse to let them go and still hold them, behold, the hand of the Lord will be on your cattle in the field, on your horses, on your donkeys, on your camels, on the oxen, and on the sheep. And it will be a very severe pestilence. And the Lord will make a difference between the livestock of Israel and the livestock of Egypt. So nothing will die that belongs to the children of Israel. Then the Lord appointed a time, saying, Tomorrow the Lord will do these things in the land. So it's a warning first again. So we need to pause here and talk about the word used to describe this disease as a pestilence. Now don't be mistaken of interpreting this as just a disease or a cow disease or a cow plague. Some experts today say this plague apparently would have probably been a, some kind of disease like anthrax, which also, I wouldn't be surprising as a follow-on from the death 
and the rotting of all the animals from the previous plagues. Now the previous plagues had affected the people indirectly at first, but this time it's affecting the personal property of the Egyptians as well. This time the Lord is doing something that affects the wealth of the Egyptians by affecting, well, initially their cattle. Now, let's be clear, this plague would have been economically devastating for the Egyptians and it goes beyond anything that the previous plagues had done because within that list of animals mentioned affected by the plague, well, to put it mildly, the death of all those different kinds of animals here would have affected everything in their life. It would have affected their transportation system. It would have destroyed their whole agricultural system and their religious worship rituals. You see, the cattle were sacred and worshipped. The Egyptians worshipped the cows. So the religious implications of this plague are also important. A large number of bulls and cows were considered sacred in Egypt. In fact, in the central area of Israel, the main developed area, that province chose as an emblem an image of a bull or a cow. That is historically documented. In Upper Egypt... We know the goddess of that region appeared as a woman with the head of a cow. So what I'm saying is this particular plague would have been particularly devastating. It is striking the people at all kinds of levels of the society. And these animals, many of them were sacred for them, and for them to die was a blow to their finances, as well as completely destroying their ability to to utilise their religious worship system. And then there are other animals mentioned here like the ox that would have been primarily a blow economically because certain animals were vital in terms of their transportation infrastructure but do notice don't miss the fact that God here again warns Pharaoh that this is going to happen even telling them when it's going to happen by saying it's going to start tomorrow so tomorrow is coming so let's see what happens tomorrow Exodus 9 verse 6 So the Lord did this thing on the next day, and all the livestock of Egypt died. But of the livestock of the children of Israel, not one died. Then Pharaoh sent, and indeed not even one of the livestock of Israel was dead when he sent the plague. But the heart of Pharaoh became hard, and he did not let the people go. Now, it's particularly interesting little phrase in the middle of that when it talks about Pharaoh sent. Did you notice that? So who did he send, where did he send them, and what did he send whoever he sent for? A little bit of study revealed to me that this term reveals that the people he's sending here are his own people, and it suggests that he's sending them to see if the Israelite cattle were still alive in the region that was within their control, which of course we were told was Goshen. So it seems like he listened to what Moses said, he saw the plague arrive, and he thought, I'd better investigate So this is a case for us today, I feel, a bit like when you take a truth of God, you present it to someone, and they don't take your word for it. And when you point it out in the Bible, they also don't take the Bible's words for it. They say, I've got to think about this, or I've got to investigate this further. In fact, in the example I used last time from the book of Acts yesterday, I talked about the group called the Bereans. And whenever they heard about Jesus, their response was to say, well, let's check this out a bit more. Let's do some research around the Old Testament and the other wisdom writings. But in reality, 
as is today, in my experience, when we experience something like that today, what it usually means is someone's just putting something off. It's another way of just saying no. And clearly, that is the case again with Pharaoh. We, in fact, we are told he hardened his heart again. Now, you'll recall in the first set of three plagues that the Lord announced that we looked at in yesterday's episode, there was a situation in the first two God announced that these plagues were coming. He issued a warning, if you like. And in the third plague on that occasion, he just sent. And he's going to do the same thing again on this second set of three plagues. So let's look at the third of the second set of three, the sixth plague, the plague of boils. And the text tells us, So the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Take for yourself handfuls of ashes from a furnace, and let Moses scatter it towards the heavens in the sight of Pharaoh and it will become fine dust in all of the land of Egypt, and it will cause boils that break out in sores on man and beast throughout the land. So the sixth plague is boils. Have you ever had a boil? I told you back in the overview how I suffered with one as a teenager, and it was incredibly painful. So this one really doesn't sound like fun to me. So I suspect the Lord really got the attention of the people with this one because they're directly suffering something that is very painful. God is doing something that's very near and dear to them um, in the sense that he's actually allowing this plague to affect their own bodies. Let's pick up the text in verse 10, which tells us, And they took ashes from this furnace, so they did what they were told, and stood before Pharaoh, and Moses scattered the ashes towards heaven, and they caused boils to break out in the form of sores on both man and beasts. And the magicians could not stand before Moses because of the boils, for the boils were also on the magicians and all of the people of Egypt. But the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, and he did not heed them, just as the Lord had spoken to Moses of. Now the point here. The important reference being made here is the fact in the past, the magicians, remember, they had duplicated the miracles, but this time they're in effect helpless. They could do nothing. In fact, they're just as afflicted as anybody else and they can't even stand before them. Things were so bad, they couldn't even get themselves before Moses. And so it's suggesting that these so-called magicians are literally helpless, powerfully pointing out that their gods, small g, were helpless in this situation. And then it tells us that the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh. But notice, this is the first time it actually says that the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. Let me clarify. Way back in the beginning of this story, when the Lord first talked to Moses about what he wanted to do, he said, I will harden Pharaoh's heart. Now, once we arrive into the main narratives and the plagues start arriving, in every case up to this point, it said Pharaoh hardened his own heart. So this is the first time that it says the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. Now for some this is a very real problem. Some people want to object that the God would harden a person's heart. But as I said before, even though God's presence is hardening the heart, the hardening of Pharaoh's heart happens because of his free will choice, his response to the Lord, the free will choice of Pharaoh. The analogy I use when describing this last time is it is the same sun that melts wax and hardens clay. So the Lord, when he shines his countenance on some people, some in a spiritual sense melt. They submit. They don't resist. Other people are like clay. When the sun shines on them, they harden. And both of these 
situations are not a commentary on the sun. They're a commentary on the response to the sun. The hardening of Pharaoh's heart is in fact a comment on the character of Pharaoh, not the character of God. The issue is he will continue to harden his heart the more and more he is exposed to the presence and the will of God. And that still remains true for us today. That happens today. In fact, in Romans, in the New Testament, it teaches us that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and righteousness, so that what may be known of God is manifest in them. For God has shown it to them since the creation of the world. So God, by bringing his presence into situations, the true nature of a person's position is manifest by that appearance and presence of God. And the text in Romans goes on to tell that he's done this to show us who they really are in the sense that he's revealed himself since the creation of the world. And it talks about his invisible attributes can be clearly understood. And by these things, he's made his eternal power and revealed the Godhead. In other words, everyone is without excuse because God's countenance is all around us. In other words, you can look at creation and you can see the creator You can look at a tree and acknowledge there's a tree maker. You can look at a mountain and say there's a mountain maker. And you can cast your eyes to the heavens and look at the stars and say there is someone who made the star. And that, in effect, is Paul's argument here. And that's what's going on here before Pharaoh. Everyone, if they wish, can conclude and look at any situation, even creation, and they can decide there is a creator God or there is just me and my own power, and react against that revelation. So instead of arriving at the conclusion, when exposed to the truth, what they effectively do is they suppress the truth, a truth that they know in their hearts, yet still they harden their hearts against us. Which is why in Romans 1.18 it talks about this situation and these types of situation. It is through these that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven upon these ungodly and unrighteous people. So what's going on here? Well, God, by working in this way at the end, is saying ultimately there is no excuse. By their reactions, they condemn themselves. The point is, anyone can look to creation and see a creator. Anyone can look to the gospel and see a need of the gospel. John, writing in chapter 7, 17, says, He who is willing to do his will, that being the will of God, shall know the Lord. And that's very important. But there are some people who just say, I'm not interested, and allow their hearts to be hardened against us. So what does the Lord do and say for us and guide us in the New Testament situation? Well, Romans chapter 1 tells us that if you reject the word of the Lord, he will, in a sense, give you over, hand you over to yourself, which is just another form of saying he will allow your heart to harden. Because by nature, if you go in that direction, your heart will get harder, not softer. And if your heart gets harder, then things can only get harder for you. One commentator speaking about what's happening here, this is the issue of ignoring the prompting of the Lord time and time again, confirms the danger of it and also confirms that that resistance in a sense, makes belief gradually more and more unlikely. It's often talked about the fact that if you still have breath in your body, there's still time for you to come to the Lord. But the reality 
of living and reacting in this way is the truth of the fact if you continually reject the Lord over and over again and you spend your life rejecting the Lord over and over again it's a dangerous situation for you and that window of opportunity in a sense is gradually incrementally slowly closed by you so that's what's going on here with Pharaoh responding in the way he does with free will choosing to harden his heart against the Lord now so far I've been focusing on the story from the viewpoint of Pharaoh and I think he is the main character in the story in the sense that the, the main message is about his response to it and the hardening of his heart. But I think, as in any story, we can learn spiritual lessons from all over the place and all the characters in the story. And the other main character in the story is, of course, the Lord himself. We've got to remember that he's the one directing this situation. Okay, so what can we learn about the Lord from this story? Well, I think if you step back a bit, and take a bit of a helicopter view, you can see that the Lord has now given Pharaoh six opportunities to repent. So I would say the Lord gives people repeated opportunities to change their way. That's a big part of the message here. Isn't that true? From the very beginning, he sent you the creation. So every time you open the door and walk outside, you can see the creation and you can see that, or choose to interpret that as a testimony of God's existence. So what's important not to miss here is the very fact that God not only repeatedly gives the person an opportunity, he even gives people who are initially hostile to him or the very idea of God repeated opportunities. Peter, writing in his second epistle in chapter 3 verse 9, says the Lord is long-suffering, giving everyone a chance, chances to repent. So I think what we see the Lord is doing here is being set as a principle with Pharaoh in an attempt to try and get Pharaoh to acknowledge who he is and that he is the one true God most high. And he not only does that, but he keeps doing it repeatedly. And one final observation, what does it mean for us? Well, I would say when these situations happen in their life, there's guidance here on what we're meant to do. So as a believer, we need to repeatedly give people the opportunity to acknowledge and accept the Lord. It's always perfectly legitimate to talk to people, especially at opportune moments, about the Lord. But we need to be patient and trust in him and be patient in our and taking the right opportunities to do that. As it says in scriptures, we need to always be prepared to give an answer for the reason for the hope that is in us. And finally, I just want to draw attention and talk a little bit about these other two characters in this story, Aaron and Moses. They're the other main characters of the story, obviously. And the important thing to point out is here, it says several times they're now doing exactly what the Lord told them to do. Or to say the same thing another way, they're not compromising, they're giving the message, they're not twisting it out of shape, they're just giving the message, the plain message that God says. They're not trying to negotiate, they're not trying to compromise, they're sticking by their guns, so to speak, saying, when the situation demands, they're just saying, no, that isn't right, no, that won't work, no, we're not agreeing to this, we're not settling to do it here, we want to do it in the way that God said in the wilderness. And I think that's sometimes appropriate for us all to learn today here, 
in the fact that some Christians, in their presentation and approach to the gospel, they sort of hedge their bets just a little bit. In fact, to put this very specifically, I remember about 30 years ago, and I remember it because the same thing happened almost within a couple of weeks, both in the UK and in the US at the same time. About 30, 35 years ago, I would estimate, a very nationally well-known preacher in this country, here in the UK, and also in the US, separately, but at the same similar time, effectively said that we shouldn't preach sin anymore. They both, in a sense, said we need to deliver a message that's more appealing to people so that they will want to come to church. I can't even imagine preaching the gospel without mentioning the word sin. That's a compromise of the whole basis of what God wants to reveal to us. Now, it's very easy and tempting to think, well, maybe we should just make things a bit more palatable. Let's just change the message to something more akin to the power of positive thinking. But when we approach the gospel, we need to think, of course, of a wide range of ways of doing it and the possibilities of how we might reach people at their point of need. But it's not just about preaching that the Lord is there to help you fulfill your dreams, which is what some people do today. Some of the most popular Christian websites and Christian preachers that appear in our media, it is in effect what their message is. These people, they can attract thousands of people, but at the same time openly declare that they don't want to go around telling anybody that they're a sinner. But the good news is that the message is that Jesus died for everyone's sin and that he rose from the dead, so we don't need to compromise in that way. We've got a solution for the problem of sin. We don't need to ignore it or brush it under the carpet. You know, at the end of the day, if you are trusting in something else, then I'm duty-bound to tell you that that won't work. And if you are trusting, or anyone is trusting in their good works, then I'm duty-bound to tell you that that also won't work because God will not allow people to be justified in that way. And his reason for that is he says, lest any man should boast. If we could be made right with God and get to heaven by the good things we do, then in what way is God involved in that situation? And I also have to say, if you're worshipping some other god, I have to tell you, just as Moses and Aaron did here, that I believe there is only one true God, the God of heaven and earth, the God who created the heavens and the earth, and the God that you are worshipping is not the God of the universe. If he's not the God of the Bible, and you're not approaching him through his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, as revealed in the Bible. And I know that message is not politically correct, but there are times when that is what I have to do, and that is all I can do, and that you and I should not compromise on that. Now, the last time, when I closed off yesterday's message, you may remember I mentioned the Apostle Paul in the city of Athens, and how I mentioned that he did not hesitate to preach judgment to the Berarians when it was appropriate. And I would recall that in your mind again. You see, from this passage, we've learned that you can get hardened in your heart if you're an unbeliever to the point that God will effectively turn you over to the consequences of your action, hand you over to your hard heart and the sin that it produces. But we can also learn from this passage and others that the Lord will patiently and repeatedly give you your message and he will fashion it using the skills of people around that it arrives to you at your point of need 
in the way and by the instrument that he has chosen that you could, if you wish, in free will respond to it. And our part, friends, is simply to be faithful in our part in that and not compromise and to give everyone the gospel of grace when we can and thereby allow everyone to turn back. You don't have to wait till the plagues come ten times. You don't have to wait till the effect on your life of living in rebellion is manifold ten times. You can do it now and you can do it today and it is our job to be faithful to our part in that process. Okay, that's it for today. We'll be back tomorrow when we look at the next three plagues. Can I remind you that this podcast is hosted on the Bible Project at buzzsprout.com. You're free to subscribe to it wherever you're getting your podcast from, but it is there that you can uh, access all the active links to all the other places where I place teaching and Bible study resources. And it's also there that you'll find a transcript of each and every episode that I do. Can I remind you or ask you that there's an opportunity on whatever site you're listening to your podcast to give a review. And that is really, really important. That is the way that you authenticate to other people that you find this teaching true to the Word of God and you want to share it to others. And that is the most important way that other people will find this teaching and arrive at it with confidence and may then choose to have their life transformed by making the study of the Bible part of their daily lives. So with that said, thank you again. Thank you for being with me. Thank you for sharing in this journey and please consider sharing it with other people that we might be instrumental in obedience by by seeing God's word be brought into the orbit of more and more people's lives. Thank you and I'll see you back here again tomorrow. Bye-bye for now.